Let's turn together in our copies of God's Word to Colossians chapter 2. Looking at verse 11 this evening, we'll read from verse 9 for context. Let us go together to the throne of grace. Our Lord and our God, for love so amazing, so divine, may we give our souls, our lives, our all in hearing the voice of Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, to hear him tell us of his fullness, what he has accomplished in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, that we would live out of him in all of the fullness of grace he has accomplished and has bestowed upon us, poor sinners that we are. Convict sinners, unite them to Jesus Christ, comfort us and build us up in him, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word, Colossians chapter 2, beginning at verse 9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead." The word of the Lord, you may be seated. As we've seen in the past couple sermons on verses 9 and 10, we have been focusing upon the fullness of deity in Jesus Christ. How the fully divine and fully human Savior, Jesus Christ, accomplished the fullness of saving grace for his people. And out of the fullness of his grace, you have been filled, church, in union with him. This is the same kind of thing John talks about in John 1.16, how we have received of Christ's fullness, grace upon grace. So as we move from verses 9 and 10 into verses 11 and following, focusing on verse 11 this evening, we are unpacking more of Christ's fullness. What else does Christ's fullness consist of? It consists of circumcision in union with him. As we'll see, Paul is focusing here in verse 11, though it can never be separated from, what he, from the other things he says, we are focusing in particular this evening upon union with Christ in his death as a curse-bearing, sin-removing death. Recall that we've been talking about the particular false teaching that the Colossians are dealing with, this Colossian heresy that is some sort of hybrid of going back to the old days, going back to the old covenant regulations and ceremonial laws, like circumcision, for example, combined with whatever sort of in vogue pagan thought at that time. This combination, this, this, this complex unbelief, was all to say that Jesus Christ is good as far as he goes, but he's not going to get you enough. He doesn't have fullness. You must receive him, but you also must add to him. And in response to that, Paul is showing over and over and over again that Jesus Christ is the fullness of grace upon grace to which nothing can be added 
but out of which we have more than enough. How we need to hear this over and over again, for we so often go to the creature rather than Jesus Christ, the creator, savior, who is blessed forever. In particular, with this, this false teaching, this Colossian heresy, probably insisted that you must be circumcised to be made right with God. Gentiles, you too must receive the right of circumcision to have right standing with God, just like a good old Jew would have. And Paul, in response to this particular aspect of the false teaching, is saying, Colossians, if you think physical circumcision is necessary for salvation, you underestimate the enormous significance of the person and work of Jesus Christ. So we'll see this in three ways, looking first of all at an otherworldly circumcision, an otherworldly circumcision. This is the first part of verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. So we see there the main thought, the main verb controlling verse 11 is you were circumcised. This displays a completed action, something that is true of you, one and done. It is in the passive voice, meaning you did not do it. You did not do it for yourself. It was done to you. It was done to you by God himself. And look at the you here, and we'll, we'll see how this kind of circumcision is so much better than what was instituted with Abraham in time. This you, in verse 11, you were circumcised, is in the plural. This is for all of God's people, all who are, verse 11, in him, all who are united to Jesus Christ by faith. This is true of every Christian, all of you, young and old, male and female, Jew and Gentile, you, in Jesus Christ, were circumcised. Now, why is that a good thing? As I speak I assume, predominantly to Gentiles. What does circumcision mean, and why is it good news that you were circumcised in union with Jesus Christ? Let's look at a, an overview of circumcision. This rite begins for God's people in Genesis 17. God's covenant with Abraham, building on Genesis 12, where God promised Abraham, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed, God's covenant with Abraham in Genesis 17 now includes the sign of circumcision, the cutting off of the foreskin of the male as early as eight days old in his reproductive organ. All circumcised males are set apart unto the Lord and belong to him. And so from that point forward in the covenant of grace, the sign and seal the sacrament of entrance into God's covenant was to come under the knife in this way. But to understand circumcision there in Genesis, Genesis 17, we need to go back earlier to understand God's covenant dealings with man prior to circumcision also had to do with coming under the knife or the sword of his judgment. Two places. Genesis 3. Adam's sin has disqualified him and all of you, all his posterity, from eating of the tree of life and entering into highest heavenly unlosable life with God on Mount Zion in the heavenly places. What now surrounds that tree of life, forbidding anyone to eat of it? A flaming sword. 
a flaming sword guards the tree of life such that from now on, anyone, any sinner in Adam who would dare enter into God's heavenly dwelling place must first of all come under the fiery sword of his judgment curse for his sin. You can get into heavenly glory and access into God's dwelling place, but you must first come under the flaming sword of judgment against you for your sin. Before the knife of circumcision was instituted, the sword of God's judgment was instituted to bar sinners from entrance into heaven. That's the first place we see the blade of God's judgment instituted prior to circumcision. The second one is in Genesis 15, which I'll come to momentarily. So one thing circumcision symbolizes is curse. You break the covenant, you receive the curse of the covenant, you come under the, the blade, the, whether the knife or the sword of God's judgment for your sin. Because of your sin, you must be cut off in judgment. But in addition to this, circumcision also symbolizes consecration, being set apart unto God as the one true and living God, as your, as your Lord, your blessedness and reward. Circumcision is a pledge of allegiance unto him. Think of Leviticus 19 in the, in the perhaps strange wording um, to our ears, how in Leviticus 19, the fruit trees for the first three years are considered uncircumcised. Only in the fourth year was the tree to be consecrated to the Lord, and then Israel was allowed to eat of it in the fifth year. So consecrating the trees in its first fruits to the Lord was the circumcision of that tree, setting apart unto him. And then think also of Genesis 22, Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac. Obviously, Abraham circumcised eight-day-old Isaac, but now God commanded Abraham to take up the knife again and cut off Isaac altogether in death. Isaac was to be totally consecrated unto God as a burnt offering there on the mount. This is where circumcision presents us with an impossible problem, a problem that no sinner can solve for himself or for others. Any sinner who would consecrate himself to God can do so only by coming under the knife of God's full judgment, which circumcision symbolizes. So there on the mount, Isaac's whole body, not just the one part of his body, his entire self is about to be cut off and offered as a burnt offering. He's about to come under the actual judgment curse. But this is another part of the impossible problem that circumcision displays to us, a problem that no sinner can solve. How can we eat of the tree of life and enter into heavenly glory if we must first come under the sword of God's judgment for our sin? How are all the families of the earth going to be blessed in Abraham if Abraham fully circumcises his supernaturally given son, Isaac? Once Isaac is killed, how can God's line of election continue since God has already said through Isaac, not Ishmael, shall your offspring be named. Isaac, upon the altar of sacrifice, shows us the problem that no sinner can solve. How can anyone 
be consecrated to living service unto God if he must be condemned to death for his sin? How can you pay for your sin and exhaust the curse of your sin if it is an infinite curse because it's against an infinite God? How can you come on the other side of that in living consecration? This is a problem you and I as sinners cannot solve for ourselves. This is what circumcision presents to us. But praise God, the answer to this problem came earlier, before the institution of circumcision, God's gracious dealing with Abraham in Genesis 15. What happened in Genesis 15? That is where Abraham wonders, how is it and will it be the case that God will bring his kingdom through me to inherit the new heavens and new earth? And God condescends to the weakness of Abraham to show him, yes, that will come to pass. So remember that scene? God tells Abraham to gather the animals and to cut them. The animals have been cut and they've been laid on either side of a path. And to pass between the cut animal pieces would be to bind yourself by an oath to a curse. Saying, in so many words, if I break this covenant... May I come under death and curse just like these dead animals. May I be dismembered under the knife of judgment for my covenant breaking. So is it up to Abraham to bring about God's promises to him? No more than it's up to you to do that. Must Abraham bear the curse of death in order then to, after death, come into life? Something we cannot do? Come from death to life? What happens? It is not Abraham, it is God who passes between the pieces. God himself, remember in Genesis 15, in the smoking fire pot and flaming torch, passed between the cut animal pieces. Why is that glorious good news? Because God was promising to come under the curse of the covenant himself in place of sinners so that they could come into their promised inheritance and blessing. God was under no obligation to pay for that curse. He had every right to inflict that curse upon the covenant breakers. But he took that curse upon himself, showing that he would pay for it. And on the other side of that curse, payment and bearing, blessing would come to covenant breakers so that they would receive good news instead of bad news. They would receive blessing instead of curse. And so this is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, who in the fullness of time, we'll see later on, would be cut off from God's presence in place of his people. It was Christ who would bear the wrath and curse of God in our place. God's promises of grace to Abraham and to us in Jesus Christ would not and could not fail. They have come to pass in Jesus Christ. That is why Isaac on that day, and that is why all sinners are spared from the condemnation of death, God himself provided the substitute in Jesus Christ. Christ would come under that judgment knife just as the animals had in Genesis 15. The ram provided in place of Isaac in Genesis 22, showing that Christ would be the substitute for sinners. Another would die for us so that we could come into newness of life. That is why the significance of circumcision can only be fulfilled 
in a God-man. He had to be man to bear the penalty of the curse, to die, but he had to be God to bring us into living consecration unto God after the penalty had been met. Only a God-man can fully bring to pass all that circumcision impossibly signifies for sinners. Man had to pay the curse, but God had to bring life after the curse, blessing after the curse. So God makes these things about circumcision explicit elsewhere in the Old Testament. How sad it was that the Judaizers, that the the Pharisees, so radically distorted the significance of circumcision to be a to be the basis of self-righteousness, to be something that they did to twist God's arm to give them eternal life, which it never meant. It never signified anything close to self-righteousness. Circumcision was never meant to be a mere outward marker of being in God's covenant. Another aspect of circumcision, it always pointed to the necessity of receiving a new heart a new nature that loves God and is fully set apart to glorify and enjoy Him. This is clear even in the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy chapter 10. The Lord set His heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Deuteronomy 30 verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Listen to this from Jeremiah 9. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh, Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who, lit, who dwell in the desert, who cut the corners of their hair. For all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. And in connection to this, as we see this, this Old Testament witness itself, not to mention the New Testament witness, that circumcision merely in your body without circumcision in your heart is uncircumcision. Because you don't have what circumcision symbolizes and signifies a heart of love and consecration unto God as your friend, your blessedness and reward. So even in the Old Testament, as Paul makes clear here, even in the Old Testament, the physical act of circumcision pointed to something that had to be done in the heart. It pointed to something done, the thing that was done in in hands pointed to something that had to be done without hands. That was always the case. It always pointed to the need for what man cannot do. Man can cut off the foreskin, but man cannot change his heart. Only God can provide that by supernatural, otherworldly grace. That's the language here that Paul uses, a circumcision that you have, believer, in Jesus Christ, that has been made without hands. That's, that points up that this is something not of this world. It is a circumcision of, of another realm, of the realm of heaven. It is something not man-made, but God-given. 
That same word that Paul uses here for without hands is used in Mark 14, 58. The, those who observe Jesus dying on the cross, mocking him, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Now this is getting into so many themes, but you, you hear what the, the, those who are mocking Jesus are saying as they understand but misunderstand what Jesus said. Yes, Jesus himself said, tear down this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. Not talking about the, 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 the temple that Ezra built, but himself. He raised himself up by heavenly supernatural resurrection power so that he is the true temple of God. We come into God's presence, not in the tabernacle of Moses, not in the relatively more stable, permanent temple of Solomon or Ezra, but in an otherworldly temple, in the real thing, in heaven itself, in the risen and ascended Christ in heaven, showing that what Christ has accomplished for us is so much better than the old ways of the old covenant. So this otherworldly circumcision seen in Christ's death and resurrection shows that you, believer, have something far better of far greater power from God and not from man, in Jesus Christ, a circumcision of a heavenly power. You were circumcised not by any human, any sinner. You were circumcised by God himself. You were not circumcised by a, by a priest who himself needs to come under the curse for his sin. You were circumcised by the great high priest who offered himself as a perfect sacrifice once and for all. You have, you have had your heart of stone taken out in a divine surgery that no man could accomplish, and you've been given a living heart, a heart that breathes for God's glory, a heart that loves God for his own sake. That is the significance of your circumcision, believer. It is not of this world. It is of eternal heavenly value. What you have and who you are in Christ is everything circumcision meant everything that has been fulfilled in his death and resurrection. Secondly, in verse 11, we move on to the removal of the flesh. The removal of the flesh in the middle of verse 11. By putting off the body of the flesh. Now here we come to a decision that must be made. Is Paul talking here about the death of Christ, the removal of of Christ's body of, of flesh, or is he talking about the removal of the body of our sin nature, the, the removal of the flesh in that, that sin nature sense? It's a difficult decision. It can go either way. This is, a, this is not dividing orthodoxy from heresy. Both of the, these things are involved in one another. <laughs> Whether it's, whether it's one or the other, both are connected. It's because of Christ's death that our sin nature is removed. They're, they're implied together. But whichever one we choose, whichever, whichever option you go for based on context and other considerations, either way, the good news is clear. We now have believer in union with Jesus Christ, crucified and raised, the reality to which circumcision pointed. So if we had to pick one, 
Is Paul talking about Christ's death or the removal of the Christian's sin nature? I lean in favor of the, the second option, the removal of the Christian's sin nature. There's the this, this similar thought, the same kind of wording. I'm going over to chapter 3 now and look at verse 9. Where, where Paul says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off, same word in, in 2.11, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. So that word in, in chapter 3, verse 9, we have put off the old self. That's the same word Paul uses in chapter 2, verse 11, about the putting off, the removal of the body of the flesh. So the what's clearer in chapter 3 is that we have a new nature. We have a new heart with new desires, and it's because of Christ's death that we have that, as we'll see um, momentarily. That's why I lean in favor of what Paul's talking about in chapter 2, verse 11, is he's talking about as we are circumcised in Jesus Christ, our sin nature has been removed. We have a new heart with new desires. And also, this is almost identical to to what Paul says in Romans chapter 6, another glorious aspect, complementary aspect of union with Christ in his death and resurrection. Listen to Romans 6, 5 and following. If we have been united to, with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So taking Romans 6 and Colossians 2 and 3 together, what has been put off in our circumcision? What has been put off in our union with Jesus Christ as that brings us into all that circumcision signifies? The removal, not of one part of our physical body, which does nothing, but the removal of our hearts of hatred against God for new hearts that love Him and want to glorify Him and have him as our treasure and our inheritance. That has been put off. That has been removed, praise God, in our circumcision in Jesus Christ. This language back, back in chapter 2, verse 11, this language of the putting off of the body of flesh, that is removal, that is a, a word of death. Again, same kind of word Paul uses, go down to the end of, or, or later on in chapter 2, to verse 15. He disarmed, same word for he put off in verse 11. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So all this comes together. Chapter 2, verse 11, we've put off the body of of the flesh. Chapter 2, verse 15, we have been removed from, cut off from the evil forces of this age. The evil spiritual forces have nothing to accuse us of in God's court of law any longer. The certificate of debt has been nailed to the cross. We'll come to that later on. And then chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, we have been set free from the enslaving power of sin 
such that our old nature in Adam is removed and we have a new nature of capital S spiritual love and grace from and for Jesus Christ. Just to put a point on this, the, this negative aspect of the flesh there in verse 11, putting off the body of the flesh. Remember what, we, what we've been saying. Who is circumcised here? You, plural. All believers in Jesus Christ. This is part of the fullness of Christ's grace for the Christian. Not just Jew, but Gentile as well. And this from one angle, would, help, would have helped to solve the question at that council in Acts 15 on whether the Gentiles need to be physically circumcised in order to be saved. What does Peter say there in Acts 15? They don't need circumcision. They have been given the Holy Spirit just as we have received the Holy Spirit. And if you have the Holy Spirit, that does that does the flesh, the sinful flesh, does away with it. The reception of the Spirit is the death of the flesh, our sin nature. So not just Jew, but also Gentile, and not just male, but female as well. All in Jesus Christ have the, have the significance, the heavenly significance of circumcision in union with him. Flesh has that deeper significance of the weakness of this present sin-cursed world, our old way of life in Adam who plunged us into sin and misery, our old sin natures. And in its place, in its removal in Jesus Christ, we have a new way of life in the second and last Adam, a new identity, a, a new heart with new desires and conformity to his image to be like him and to love what he loves and hate what he hates. Life in the spirit instead of the flesh. This is what Paul says elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he is new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So all this is to, to, to summarize. All this is to say that believer, in the removal of, of the body of the flesh, you no longer belong to this sin-cursed world. You are no longer destined to destruction. The otherworldly circumcision has cut you off from this earthly realm of death and consecrated you to make you a citizen of the heavenly realm of life. Christ has done what physical circumcision never could do. He has removed your sin nature and transferred you from this lower earthly realm of death to the higher heavenly realm of life. Thirdly and finally, we see the circumcision of Christ at the end of verse 11. End of verse 11, by the circumcision of Christ. So what are we talking about here? What is the circumcision of Christ? Well, notice the sequence. From end of verse 11 into end of verse 12, by the circumcision of Christ, verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him. So notice the sequence, the, the core of our religion, what makes us who we are, Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. So Paul is speaking there at the end of verse 11 of Christ's death in the terminology of his circumcision. 
This is the atoning death of Jesus Christ. So not only, to add to what we've been saying, not only is the circumcision that is ours, Jew and Gentile, male and female in Jesus Christ, not only is it otherworldly, not only is it heavenly from God and not from man, it is also something historical. This did not come about in fullness until Jesus Christ suffered the wrath and curse of God in place of sinners upon the cross at Calvary. It is only in Christ's death and resurrection that the significance of circumcision has been brought to completion for us and applied to us. Think of it. God's justice must be satisfied. There is a, a time for, for types and shadows, <clears throat> for, the, for the preview of things in Abraham, <clears throat> Abraham and Isaac and through the prophets. But the wrath and curse of God must be dealt with. God's justice must be satisfied. The judgment curse must be given. A holy God must be satisfied. And that will happen either to you for your sin or to a substitute for you. If you bear your curse yourself, that's it. Only curse eternally. But if a Redeemer does it, if a Redeemer bears the curse for you, then there is blessing through curse. After the curse has been born and dealt with, the Redeemer brings his people into eternal blessing, into living consecration to God. The circumcision of Christ. Think of this from Isaiah 53, verse 8. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? Do you hear that language there? In that glorious suffering servant song, how the servant will be pierced for our transgressions. He will be bruised for our iniquities. The, the chastisement that fell upon him will bring us peace. That, in Isaiah 53, 8, is his cutting off what Paul calls his circumcision. And so even though it is of value that infant Jewish Jesus was circumcised in his eighth day of existence, human existence, in the temple, consecrated unto God, the real circumcision took place in God's presence at Calvary when he bore the wrath and curse of God in place of sinners and for the benefit of sinners. His external circumcision, eight days old, was in God's presence in the temple, but his real heavenly circumcision took place in God's presence when he was abandoned by God on the cross, crying out, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was abandoned to a cursed darkness, not one part of his body, but his entire body, crown of thorns, nails through his hands and feet, whipped beyond recognition. He was a bloody curse and mess, bearing the curse for sinners. And because of this believer, because of, he was cut off and cast away from God's presence, you in him will dwell forever in God's presence. What was cursed for him is blessing for you. And on the other side of his curse comes the blessing for you. 
On the other side of his death, he brings us into life in his life from the dead. Christ is the one, to come back to what we mentioned earlier, who came under the flaming sword surrounding the tree of life in our place. And in union with him, we have his promise, Revelation 2-7, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. That is why when we see the tree of life again in Revelation 22, in the heavenly paradise land, it's open access. There's no flaming sword around it. The sword's been taken away. The curse has been born. And now all the nations can come to it and eat its fruit and pass into heavenly glory and joy. Out of his curse in our place comes eternal blessing to us. So everything circumcision represented is fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is why we don't practice physical circumcision anymore. We have the real thing in Jesus, his curse-bearing and living consecration to God for us. Because he came under God's curse, we receive God's blessing. Because he experienced hell torment, we receive heavenly bliss. Only Jesus Christ can do this, leading us through the way of curse into blessing, life on the other side of death. So for these Colossians, who knows how they responded, but can you see that going backwards in the history of redemption is ridiculous? Why would you go back to circumcision when you have the circumcision of Jesus Christ? Why would you go to the table of showbread when you have Christ who is the bread of life? Why would you need the lampstand when Jesus Christ is the light of the world? Why would you make a journey to a man-made tabernacle or temple when Jesus Christ is our tabernacling presence of God? He has fulfilled all the promises. Why would you go back to what was preparatory? And it's not just foolish to go back to those things. It is offensive. It is a spurning of his fullness that you must, that you, you think you can add to it and need to supplement it. Your supplementation is garbage. Live out of his fullness. It is glorious fullness of grace upon grace. So in conclusion, the heavenly significance of circumcision has come to pass because Christ is the one who took upon himself God's curse against us so that we could experience eternal blessing. Circumcision pointed to this for centuries, and circumcision has been abundantly fulfilled in the full curse-bearing death of Jesus Christ. Unlike physical circumcision, this true, ultimately, ultimate and heavenly significance of circumcision, again, is for all believers. Don't become a Jew to be saved. Come to Jesus and be saved. It's for Israelites and the nations. It's for male and female. Christ's representative, curse-bearing death is our true circumcision. <clears throat> and out of his death, we have safely passed through God's judgment and have come into his presence in heavenly blessing. So you are left, all who are hearing, you are left with two and only two options. 
Either you come under God's judgment and curse for your sin, and you can never exhaust that, that sanction, that penalty. It will go on in eternal conscious torment. That's one option. Or you come to Jesus Christ, who mysteriously brought the eternal wrath of God against sinners to an end because he is the eternal redeemer. You come to the other side of that judgment curse in Christ who bore it for you, our blessed representative. Only Christ can bear away God's wrath and curse symbolized in circumcision so that we can be fully consecrated to God, dwelling with him in the paradise land he promised all the way back to Abraham. You do not add to this. You gloriously live out of it and out of it and out of it. You will never reach the bottom of this grace upon grace. The only thing you provide is the sin deserving of condemnation. So come again, whether veteran believer or unbeliever, come and receive the fullness of Jesus Christ, his representative curse-bearing, so that you would know the blessing of God now and forever. May God add his blessing to the reading and preaching of his word.